0: Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go, with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to History Worth Repeating. L.P. Hartley wrote that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. My name is Barbara Brooks and I'm a Professor of History at the University of Otago.
1: And my name is Sonia Tiernan. I am the Eamon Cleary Professor of Irish Studies also at the University of Otago. Together over this series of podcasts, we want to canvas wide aspects of the past from individual stories to national histories, from political events to emotional tides. We believe that some history is worth repeating,
0: especially if those histories have been previously overlooked, ignored, or not deemed worthy of entry into the history books. So today we're delighted to have with us Mark Seymour, who's an Associate Professor in History at the University of Otago, and he's recently published a new book entitled Emotional Arenas, Life, Love and Death in 1870s Italy. So in this book, Mark, you use a dramatic trial for murder to make larger claims about the role of the court in the newly unified Italy. So could you tell the re- the listeners how you came across this trial and how did you come to see the potential for a bigger story?
2: Oh, yes. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. It's very nice to have an opportunity to talk about a book, especially after a long lockdown. Um... I wasn't looking for this sort of thing. I was actually doing some research on the Italian debates on divorce uh, in the 19th century uh, because of the strength of the Catholic Church. Italy didn't actually have a divorce law until 1970, so nearly 100 years after the period I was looking. But the first proposals to try and introduce divorce uh, came into Parliament in 1878, and I was looking at newspapers, historic newspapers, to see what sort of attitudes could be found in newspapers. And my mm. eyes happened to fall on a dramatic story about a murder uh, in Rome in October 1878. And it was the most extraordinary story. I don't know how much to give away now, but it, was, it involved a love triangle. That's always going to be juicy, isn't mm. it, especially in Catholic Italy? Uh, And it also – I could see over the ensuing weeks of reportage that Italians clamoured to give an opinion on this love story as as it unfolded. So I could tell that it was something that resonated with the public and that's why I could see that it was going to be a bigger story than just your average murder trial.
1: Mm, I, I can see but how your eye would happen to fall on this story because it is absolutely, it's spectacular even now. So you can only imagine how the newspapers must have loved it as well. So all the reporting. Tell us about the three main protagonists that you're talking about in this love triangle, because this, of course, will give us the essence of, you know, the sensationalism, I suppose.
2: Yes. Um, well, uh, there was one woman and two men. The woman... Uh, when she first entered the story, was eighteen. she was a bride. she married uh, a soldier who was about ten years her senior. Her name was Raffaella. his name was Giovanni, and they got married in Naples in eighteen seventy one uh, and it was Giovanni who fell victim to the murderer 's dagger and that mm-hmm. murder that murderer was Pietro Cardinali, the third member of the love triangle. Uh, He murdered Giovanni in order to get rid of uh, the husband and make way for his own marriage to Raffaella. Mm. It's uh, it's not really a love triangle in the sense Mm. that there was no love to be lost between Giovanni and uh, Pietro. It was really competition for one woman. Raffaella Clearly, was never in love with Giovanni. It was more of an arranged marriage that was so typical of nineteenth-century Italian culture, and they just never gelled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, they spent most of their married life apart. Uh, and when when uh, Raffaella and Pietro Cardinali got together. There was clearly the electricity that was lacking in her marriage,
0: but but perhaps you need to tell the listeners what was so attractive about Pietro Cardinali. Yeah. the name
1: sounds good.
2: Yeah. Right? He, he wore he
0: wore a particular costume that might have appealed.
2: Well, I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you where they met. So uh, while Raffaella and, and Giovanni were living apart, part, uh, Raffaella became a keen fan on the circus, and Pietro Cardinali was the star. Uh, equestrian acrobat of this particular circus he had a bit of a habit of making eyes at all and sundry uh, at least the (laughs) women anyway and um, he picked her out as a likely prospect
0: so here we have Rafaela uh, admiring a circus uh, performer but she was married to a soldier so how did that marriage to a soldier uh, impact on her life?
2: Well, in some ways, it was seen as a very good marriage for a young woman. Uh, Italy's economy was quite fragile in the 1870s. It had only just become a a unified nation. Italian unification took place in 1860. Soldiers were really used to sort of build the infrastructure of the emerging nation. And that was a secure job at the time. So you know, on for her parents, it was a great match because she had, a, uh, she was married to uh, a husband with a secure job, so that was good. But there was no sparkle, and um, the other thing is that a soldier's life was arduous. Uh, Giovanni mm. was stationed in all sorts of godforsaken parts of Italy. We think of it as very glamorous now. Mm. But in the 1870s, uh, hinterland, rural Italy, was an incredibly tough place. So this poor woman who came from an upper middle class background and was used to parties and salons and singing around the piano was a very, very lonely wife in effectively what to her was a foreign country waiting for her husband to come home. And it was utter misery for her.
0: So she preferred the company of her family.
2: She kept gravitating back mm. from her marriage mm. uh, to her family. Um, so, yes, she kept, they kept drifting apart. And that was really understandable from today's perspective. But back then it was really in, um, intolerable.
0: Did her parents, uh, were they happy that she would keep coming home?
2: They were. Her mother in particular, who plays a, a great role in the, in the story... Clearly, uh, was very protective of her. She um, and she, after a few years at least, uh, she actually seemed to prefer to have her daughter at home, even though it was highly unorthodox right. in marital terms, uh, than for her to be out in the Italian wilderness.
1: And then along comes the circus.
2: In spins the circus man.
1: So that's what I want to talk about um, is because in the book you connect emotions with a number of different spaces and one being the circus. And actually I love your title of chapter two which is the circus Arena of Desire which kind of gives this, this kind of snapshot. But tell us about the role of the circus in Italy at this time.
2: Well, I've already built this picture of a, of a sort of wilderness, Italy. Mm-hmm. It was um, Most villages were very, very isolated. There were no roads. Railways were only just started to be built in the 1870s. Most people, if they were born in a place, they stayed there. So in all these rural outposts, the circus coming to town was the most exciting event of the year. Mm. And it would stay, you know, plant its tent on the, the common ground for four or five weeks and most people in the town would go several times a week to see this circus. So it was really the focal point of village life and entertainment, uh, a, a real high point. Yeah.
0: How big was the circus that, that uh, Je- um, Pietro, Pietro was in? Uh,
2: small. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the total number of people involved was about 25. But there were, there were uh, about three or four main performers there were two clowns. There were no animals uh, except for horses. It was an equestrian circus. So they used to gallop around this 13-metre-round uh, uh, diameter circus mm. and perform tricks, jumping from one horse to another, throwing each other into the air and doing somersaults. Yeah, and and do you have like any
0: uh, idea about how Pietro trained to be a circus performer?
2: I have no evidence about that except reading between the lines. I know that circus families were it was it was some it was a a job that you inherited and so I just know that he started learning the tricks of the circus from a very very young age. Mm-hmm. His main performing partner, Antonietta, uh, was adopted into the circus at the age of 7. Wow. And she was passed off as his sister because it seemed like a a, a nice uh, acceptable relationship it turns out that in fact she had borne him two children uh, but uh, that's, <laughs> that's just fantastic. a little footnote In yeah. you know
1: <laughs> that's really interesting though because you always get this idea of the you know the wayward people who run away with the circus so this is more actually about this kind of you know it's within a family which is, I find really interesting
2: well If I can say about, I mean, that that wayward idea, I think, comes from Victorian England, which had a much more clear class system. And there was something about circuses as grubby, uh, questionable and so on. But on continental European soil, circuses were much more socially acceptable. The horse, uh, which was the sort of favorite animal of the aristocracy, Mm. actually linked circuses with the aristocracy. And the king of Italy used to go to the circus all the time. And, in fact, uh, uh, Pietro and his so-called sister Antonietta, wherever they went, they were always the top guests on any party list. They So that, so there wasn't this separation oh, that we separate. associate. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Yes, yeah. they were yeah.
2: really, really sought after. They were yeah. the equivalent of film stars today. You know, yeah. if you could get a couple, you know, George Clooney or something yeah, to your party, that's, yeah, that's everybody actually, would come. Yeah. So it's actually, you know, I class so. systems were culturally... And historically different uh, mm. in Italy.
0: So, in thinking about the circus itself as an emotional arena, yes. are you thinking about the relationship between them as a sort of circus family, or are you thinking more about the relationship between their performance and the spectators?
2: Well, both. I look, I really closely investigate both. Mm. The family, which was an extended family of uh, Pietro and his two brothers and their wives. Uh, and their children, uh, and Antonietta, who fitted in where she could, uh, had quite a, I won't say tense relationship, but there was a lot of jealousy between Pietro and his common-law wife, who I haven't mentioned yet. Her name was Caroline. Uh, They all lived together. So there were a lot of emotional tensions within the family, the extended family, but none of those were... Known to the audience. And so the, the circus itself was a spectacular show, which mm. was thrilling and full of all sorts of emotions for the public. Um, one of them, I think, being desire. It's very clear, probably, that, you know, that both artists were very physically attractive mm. and deliberately evoked emotions of desire from the audience, mm. uh, whether that spilled over the boundary of the circus into mm. the nightlife of the town. Well, I was going to say we don't know, but in fact, we do know. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. so that, that leads on to the, you, <laughs> the,
0: the question I was going to ask about the, the fan mail that uh, yeah. Pietro Cardinali acquired, um, which uh, you have a, a photograph of one of these letters in the book, and it's, it's beautiful. Uh, it's on very special paper. It almost looks like embroidery. Or yes. maybe it's on yes. linen. It's Is on a it? sort of doily. Doily, It, it looked yeah.
2: look like paper, but it's like a, uh, an old-fashioned cake doily.
0: Yeah. So, mm. um, so do you think of it as fan mail, or so these are letters from women who saw him in the circus and then really wanted to get to know him? I mean, what what are they writing to him? What are they wanting from him?
2: In essence, they wanted to marry him. <laughs> Uh, That's what they said. That's how they framed their admiration for him. But I think they probably wanted to have sex with him, in fact. I mean, he was physically desirable. And for me as a historian of Italy, this was really an extraordinary find because all the writing about Italian women was how cloistered they were and how butter would not have melted in their mouth. Uh, And these letters, who are from anonymous admirers of Pietro, show just the opposite.
1: Wow! Yeah, see, it kind of, it's, it's making me wonder what was going on at this time in in Holy Catholic Ireland as well. Yes, think that's of, right. I don't think you there was anything else. Scandalous, it it, as, it it yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Although there is something similar because there's playing, like there's there's um, actors and show bands that travel around, around. so much, circuses. Yeah. But it's all fascinating. The other issue that you talk about as well, and you've just mentioned the king going to um, the circus as well. While we're talking about things like the emotions evolved by the death of those close to us, you talk about in the book as well the effect that the death of Victor Emmanuel the third, second? Second. Second's death in January 1878, that this was a turning point initially. So why was this? What was so changing about the environment initially based on, on the death?
2: Um, well, as I said Italy had only been made into a unified nation in 1860, 61 formally. Uh, Victor Emmanuel II was, I know it sounds silly, but he was actually the first king of united Italy. He'd already been Victor Emmanuel II of Piedmont. And when he was made king of Italy, he chose to keep his title of Victor Emmanuel II. Uh, And he moved to Rome very reluctantly the popes had owned Rome or run Rome of, as their own domain for 800 years, and it was incredibly difficult for the new nation of Italy to stake its claim and give Rome a national rather than a Catholic identity. And there was always great worry that Italy would actually fall back into its constituent part, six or seven different polities. The reason I look at Emmanuel's death as a turning point is because there was such an incredible national emotional outpouring after he died. Mm. Italy had its first ever state funeral for him. People came in droves on discounted trains from here, there and everywhere. It it became evident to most Italians that they were in fact a national community that they didn't ever mm. really think they were. And it was an emotional event and an emotional outpouring which shows historians that this formal legal structure actually had an emotional uh, background as well. So perhaps in a way it's more a turning point for historians of Italy than it is for Italy itself. But people were amazed. It was something a bit like Covid, you know. Yeah, it it revealed kind of tragedy or something mm. yes, that actually yes. unites everybody. It mm. revealed all sorts of things which people just never really thought were the case. Mm. It, it made evident things that were previously invisible, uh, and so it showed that in fact Italy really was uh, a united nation.
0: Uh, very interesting to think about having to create a kind of counter space to the the power of the church. Yes, mm. so. Um, Tell us about the role that the court, which is uh, one of your central arenas, plays in that unification and and that tangle with the church.
2: Yes. Well, you know, the church's main emotional public space was the church or churches. Mm. Uh, And one of the key places that the state had were courts of law. It was one of the few places where the public could go and participate on a very regular basis in the liturgy, if you will, of state mechanisms, Mm -hmm. particularly women. Women were not in any way, uh, they didn't have the vote or anything, but they absolutely loved going to court. And in a way, I see the court as a, you know, it's a secular church in a way. It's about an ideology. It has its own sort of emotional rhythms and formality and so on. And I found it a really interesting cousin of the church. But in my particular case, I think the court also was seen as a bit of a circus. Mm -hmm. The state only just managed to keep control of the process and stop it becoming a sort of spectacular form of public entertainment. Mm. So there's a sort of spectrum from the church to the court to the circus. And I look at the relationships among those bases along that spectrum. Mm.
1: Yeah, but it must have been very theatrical at the time, because you even think about there's different outfits that different people involved in the court scene will wear, the judge the you know, see, so you kind of think of it from that. And what about the courtrooms in Italy? Are they kind of set up in that nearly arena style as well or?
2: The thing that's yeah. most fascinating to me and actually gave me the idea is that the, the state didn't have money to build courts okay. in the 1870s. So yeah. what did it do? It sequestered churches.
0: Wow.
2: And it made courts out of churches. It used the, the window dressing, as it were, and it just removed the crosses and made it into a secular space. Later on, yeah. in, the, in the 20th century, there were specially built courts, but back then they used whatever they could get.
0: So any uh, resentment of that that you're aware of? By the
2: by the church. Enormous yeah. resentment. No, oh, no,
0: oh, no, but by the everyday you know, people saying, Oh, that's our
2: no. our place to go. No, they no. it was much more fun
0: <laughs> to go to a <laughs> yeah. a murder
2: trial with witnesses like the clowns, they yeah. were finally found. Oh. The donkey trainer was invited to the port to translate Jargon that they'd used to communicate with telegrams. Oh, yes, so tell us um, about. Yeah.
0: That. Yes, they had their own secret code for yeah. uh, well, arranging the murder.
2: When Pietro went yeah. to Rome, uh, his murder victim wasn't there, uh, and he sent a series of telegrams in code to his sister, his alleged sister, Antonietta, <laughs> uh, in a way that hid his tracks. And the authorities were really stumped by this code and they had to get a, a professional donkey trainer to come and explain what <laughs> the telegrams meant. And this man <laughs> appeared in court and the newspapers had a field day because apparently everyone asked how, how his best donkey was in terms of <laughs> absolute, absolutely theatre. It was truly yeah. an amazing story.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um so in the, early on in the book, you, you describe the confessional as a kind of key way for us to think about the emotions. Um, I, you know, I thought that, that really drew the reader into thinking about space. And then you go through a series of different spaces uh, to build your argument in the book. So which, which of these spaces did you find most intriguing?
2: The court, uh, you know, the the records about the court, the newspaper reports about the court are just fascinating. Mm. But really what, what I was trying to investigate was the possibility that our emotions are subconsciously shaped by the public spaces where we find ourselves and that we would express our emotions and possibly even feel our emotions differently according to the spaces. I think about going back to my primary school classroom And I feel a sort of a Proustian memory of a slight anxiety and all sorts of things. Um, So I sort of built from that and explored the possibility that as spaces are changed by architects and designers and so on or the state, so slowly uh, social and cultural habits really about the way emotions are felt and expressed can change as well. And I thought that this might give us some sort of concrete clues to trace the history of the emotions because it's very, very difficult to find evidence of those yeah. sorts of changes because emotions are so nebulous uh, and so rarely accurately committed to the sorts of records that historians use.
0: Yeah. So, so actually in, in creating the, the court, uh, we're nearly out of time, but it, you know, it sort of fascinates me how, how people would have to find a new emotional register. So you know they might go to the circus and cheer the,
2: <laughs>
1: yes. cheer
0: the acrobat, but when they see him in court, they have to be. Yes. yes. Well,
2: but how did they know that? The, yeah. So how, how did they? Well, the state. <laughs> the state had to invigilate the emotional atmosphere of the court. It really helped that it had been a church because, in a sense, that sort of reverence and respect was all already. Ingrained into the people, but when you get a donkey trainer or clowns and and wet nurses and yeah. sexy uh, acrobat performers, it throws people off the scent. So the 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 court's ushers were perpetually reining in oh, the public's emotions yeah, okay. in a, in a way that was written down for yeah.
0: me. Yeah. 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 Well, Mark, um, you've taken us down a byway into uh, little known. Lives from yeah. donkey trainers <laughs> to circus performers to uh, middle-class women in Italy longing to marry mm. acrobats. Uh, so thank you very much, and we think this is history well worth repeating.
2: Except the murder. Thank you very very <laughs> much for for having me. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Mark.
0: ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.